Good morning and go Vols. <laughs> hey, keep your Bible open to that passage. If you already have it open there, that is going to be the passage that holds the most for us today. My name is Luke, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. I'm a lead teaching pastor. I'm excited about this passage, but, and not to be overly dramatic, it's going to be a tough passage, a tough sermon. Before I love the truth found in this, I hated it for a long time. I hated this kind of sermon, and no doubt is I get the opportunity to lead you through it. Some of you will squirm. You will feel uncomfortable. You will hate it today. You may never come back. That's what we're looking at. I'm going to talk about suffering today, which is not the hardest thing to talk about, right? I mean, it's kind of a softball for pastors to talk about suffering, but talking about where God's role is in our suffering, not such a softball, not so easy to talk about. In fact, sometimes I think the fastest way to grow a church big quickly is to skip passages like this, but I think God is calling us to do something a little bit different here. Our goal is not to get as large as fast as possible, but to be honorable and to be faithful, faithful to who God is, faithful to the word that he has given us, and as leaders, to be faithful to you, right? So that's why we're going to deal with this today. Overall, Christians, we struggle in how to engage suffering. I think we struggle in different venues. We struggle theologically in suffering. Um, why is this happening, right? How can I avoid suffering? If I'm already in deep affliction and suffering has found me, can I behave my way out of it? Can I pray my way out of it? Are there things I can do to shorten the affliction I'm in? Are there things I could do to make sure that affliction never comes? There's theological struggles, but I think on top of there just being head struggles, there's heart struggles, visceral ones. Why is not just this happening? Why is it happening to me? Is God dropping me right now? If God loves me so much, why won't he give me the answer to this problem that just refuses to be solved? So listen, I'm not going to be cavalier with this topic today. You guys are not a hypothetical crowd with hypothetical problems, right? You came in here with heavy affliction, pains, struggles. You carried them in here with you, right? So in this passage, one of the things that I think is so friendly about this passage, as abrupt as it can be, is you have a person in this passage, the man born blind, that represents you. He, he represents you in this passage, right? Um, someone who is not doing something horrible or horrendous, someone who just seems innocent enough, yet something horrible has found them, right? But he's more than just a representative. He's more than just something like a metaphor. He's a real guy. This was a real blind guy in a real historical moment. Consider the fact that he was born blind, never saw the sunset before. Think about it. Never saw the face of his mom while she laughs. Doesn't know the difference between green and blue, right? My wife would say when I dress myself, I don't either, right? <laughs> but this guy doesn't even know what green looks like. He doesn't even know what the difference between red or white. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know what light does when it hits water. I mean, blindness is a special kind of affliction, isn't it? It's a special kind of suffering. We do believe that he is probably an, an elder man in his 20s, 30s. He's not a kid. 
We know this because he's out um, asking for alms. He's begging at the city gate, which shows that there is an added affliction to his initial affliction, and that is the fact that his parents can't afford to just keep him at home unless he's kind of paying his own freight. He's got to go out and beg for money to reproduce or to replenish the cost that he is imposing. You see, society didn't really know what to do with people that were blind in a time and an age like this time and age and in a place like this place. There weren't schools for the blind. Um, Braille, to my knowledge, didn't exist back then. We didn't have occupational therapy coming in and helping families kind of maneuver the intricacies of having someone live in that household that are blind. Society doesn't really know what to do with a person like this, even down to the family. Did you notice in the dialogue the families? conversation with the Pharisees. I still don't know what to do with the family in this. I still don't know how I feel about how they're handling him as an adult and them as Pharisees. Makes me feel a little bit gross reading it. I think darkness being this guy's reality, he had struggles and afflictions added to it. And then you have Jesus and his disciples enter into this scene, right? They walk in, The disciples see this guy. The disciples see that Jesus sees this guy. So they think it's a brilliant time to have a theological nerd discussion on why this guy is blind, right? Why is this guy really blind, Jesus? Help us get to the bottom of it. They're looking for causality. The why behind the what. So they start asking questions. I have heard some people teach that this discussion that they're having with Jesus is happening within earshot or within reach of the guy that is blind. I don't know that this passage leads us that direction. I think that's an overinterpretation, but I can agree that it's probably a bad time and a place for a conversation like this. It doesn't seem to fit. It feels a bit out of place. In fact, I'd say at this point, these disciples look less like Jesus's friends and they look more like Job's friends. If you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're a guest and you're a total stranger to the Bible, you should take some time and read the book of Job. We don't have time to go into Job today. In fact, this sermon could really render itself out to be several sermons. But just punchline, Job had some friends. Turned out to be not such the greatest friends to have around when you're struggling with something. They came, and initially they were doing a good job because they didn't say anything. (laughs) But as soon as they started talking... They started looking for causality. Why, Job, did all of this bad stuff happen to you? There's got to be a why behind the what. What did you do? Quit lying to us, Job. You must have done something. Fess up. It's time to confess. So what they were looking for, the disciples, looked a lot like that in this case. Because if this guy sinned, this blind guy, well, then it makes sense. He's a sinner. In, In fact, if his parents Sinned. Well, it, it makes almost sense. It's, you could at least stomach it. You see, they were putting both suggestions out there because if this horrible tragedy hit this guy when he was born, if this really happened the way it did, they wanted it to be explainable. They wanted there to be a reason for the blindness because maybe if that was the case about suffering, then we could control it. We could decide who actually goes through affliction, whether we go through affliction or not. So they treat this man as a theological discussion. I think we can be like this too sometimes, church. I think you would agree it's much easier to discuss and debate theological matters in some abstract way than actually stoop down and get our hands dirty on the real tangible needs of a very broken people. It's easy to do that. 
well, I know I'm needed to do something in this city, but I'm going to buy a few books to, to really convince me of it, or I'm going to have discussions and discussions and more discussions. You see, back then in this time, the common theology was that there was always a one-to-one correlation between character and suffering, right? One-to-one. If you had a good character, you didn't have to suffer. If you had a bad character, then suffering was sure to find you. You know, I say it was a, a prevailing notion back then as if it is not today, but that is a predominant belief in theology today. We actually have a name for it. It's the prosperity message or the prosperity theology, which will teach in some measure that you can swerve the potholes of life if you just pray a certain way, read the Bible a certain way, do things a certain way, show up around the the right amount of people. You could have steps that could help you not ever taste affliction. In fact, if you do the right things in the right order, you can always be healthy. You could always have um, a lot of money. You could have lots of friends around you. Therefore, therefore, if you're struggling, there's got to be sin in your life. As if we all don't have sin in our life, right? You need to repent. Now, I will say it's true. You can make some stupid decisions. We can be unwise and bring suffering to ourselves, right? Cheat on your spouse. Go ahead, do that, and you will find yourself in a large amount of suffering and affliction that you brought on yourself. Steal from work, lose your job, right? These are dumb decisions you can make that will bring suffering to yourself. Addicts will tell you, I made some poor decisions that got me in a bad place right now. I brought this suffering to some degree on myself. We see this, and it's also true that your parents can bring a large level of suffering to you. These are true, these are truisms, right? Ask the children of alcoholic parents whether mom and dad brought some level of suffering. Ask the children of divorced parents. We can go wider. Ask those who were children of parents who overworked. Right? There is a special suffering that can come from mom and dad. These are true statements. But, and what we're going to focus on today, because we're not going to take the easy way out, but there is a suffering that comes to those whose character and life are lived out wisely. Tragic things. This man was born blind. We live in a fallen world where terrible things, loss, pain, affliction, come to very good people that don't seem to deserve it. And I think where mankind in general bogs down is God's role in it all. Not that suffering is around, but what, where are God's fingerprints when it comes to our suffering? I mean, we have children that are born with things like cerebral palsy and spina bifida. We have great Christian families that have poverty sweep in, or they lose a child, or something tragic happens. We have hurricanes plowing right through the middle of a state. We have all kinds of things happen. You know, I think it's easy for me to say, and easy for you to agree, the good people endure great suffering. You know, one of the reasons I love the Bible so much is it's so brutally honest and it won't redirect around topics like this. Even before I was a Christian, even as a young skeptic and a young evolutionist and a young atheist, even as a young man, I could at least appreciate the Bible because at least it seemed honest and courageous. It will deal with it. But as courageous as I thought the Bible was, and as much as I appreciated the brutal honesty of it, still teachings like this caused a revulsion in me. Caused a standoffness. I just didn't want to didn't want to even think about it. You know, one of the things we did in Tampa, God was reminding this, me of this this morning when I was praying and getting ready for this. 
this brief encounter I had in our second church plant in Tampa Bay, me and two other pastors spent two years doing this, where twice a week we would go out and knock on doors and tell people about the church, right? Hey, there's a new church down the street. We'd love to have you come. We'd love for you to connect. Is there anything we can do for you? Is there anything we can pray about now, right? Doesn't seem like it's some weird deal. We did it for two years. We knocked on almost 20,000 doors, the three of us, right? It's a lot of doors to knock on, man. And I will tell you, their response is pretty much what you would predict their response to be. We had everything between everything between not interested at all and cannot wait to shut the door to not interested at all and cannot wait to shut the door except they're smiling and everything in between those two things, <laughs> you know? Not a lot of great response off of knocking on the door. I mean, what are they gonna, you're, you're like interrupting their meal, you're interrupting whatever they were doing, Netflix, work, whatever, and they just don't wanna talk to you about the things of God. So I maybe got 10, 12, 15 violent reactions from people at the door, like aggressive ones, like ones where you take a few steps back whenever the door opens and they start talking. But with all the aggressive responses that I personally got over that two-year span, one really stands out. And it wasn't aggressive in the, the way you think it would be. It was a family. It was actually a couple. It was an older man and an older woman. They had been through a lot of life. I think they were in their late 70s. Grown up in the church. He was a deacon and then an elder for a little while. She was a deacon in a the church. They grew up in the church. They helped lead the church they were in. And now they were going to inform me they didn't want anything to do with God. Not that they didn't believe in God. They didn't want anything to do with God. They hated God. Their words, not mine. I hate God. Just a little bit of probing revealed that they lost a son in his 20s. It was a horrible cancer. It was a long affliction. Peace did not come. He died. And now they're left with the affliction and the suffering of their only, only child being gone. They didn't want anything to do with God. You know, suffering can truly bring us to a place where we misinterpret God's character, where we just miss it altogether, even for you today. You'd have to admit that suffering on a deep level, can it not create and build a little bit of distance between you and the God you say you worship? Like a buffer, pre preventing a deep level of intimacy. I mean, honor God, sure. Be intimate with God? Not really. Like God? Sure. Love God? Not really. Maybe if God brought a miracle to the end of my bad story, like in this story, then I will be a, a cheerleader for what God does. But until then, yeah, not really. You see, there's three big things that I believe mankind in general does with suffering in God's role. We could put it on a spectrum, really. I think we could put people on all kinds of spectrums. I think it's a helpful way to teach. I know I'm always bringing some sort of a spectrum up here. We all fit somewhere on different spectrums, right? But there is a spectrum that says that we believe God is unable to stop suffering. He just can't stop it. It just plows on, and all he can do is look with a big bleeding heart, and he can't even stop it. But if you move a little bit down the spectrum, in the middle, you'll find a group that believes that God does allow suffering, or we'll use words like permit, he will allow or permit suffering, but he doesn't want to. Not his first choice. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum where people believe that God designs it purposefully. He designs it purposefully. Where you fall on the spectrum is going to reveal your heart towards God. 
how you see his character, and how intimate you allow yourself to get with this God. Okay? Let me take that first view, and I'll unpack it, because you're going to find yourself in one of these views. Because you've struggled with this. You have, you have struggled with this teaching. I know that because I have struggled with this. As I said, I've hated it long before I loved it. There is a populace of the church that believes that God has nothing to do with suffering or affliction. That this affliction came to me and it was not God's will. This car accident happened, not God's will. Lost my spouse to cancer, not God's will. Child has a learning disability, not God's will. And this view, this posture, takes the stance that God is all loving, but he's not powerful. Big heart, little arm. Not strong. Right? Every disaster in this view, every form of suffering happens before a, a God who's, you know, to, to say the phrase, lashed to the mast. He is shackled and he cannot get involved. He's just crying and he's screaming, but he can't do anything to stop the madness that we see. This theology is not taught as much as it is caught. There are people that teach this, certainly. But I think we catch it and our logic just kind of makes sense of it. I mean, because a lot of us are parents, right? So it sounds a little bit like this. God loves me, but this hurts me. Certainly, if God loves me, he wouldn't let this hurt me, because I'm a parent, and I wouldn't let something hurt my kid. I definitely wouldn't design that to happen. So, so if this thing is hurting me, and God loves me, that means that he didn't see this coming. Maybe his back was turned. Maybe he can't stop it, right? This theology has a very, very weak view of God's power, a very short arm. But then you have the middle part of this spectrum, and I do believe this is probably where most Christians rest, okay, even though they're confused on it, and that is that God allowed this affliction to happen, but he did it reluctantly, reluctantly. This view reveals a God that would never permit suffering as a first option, yet he lets it happen reluctantly. Usually this posture has a miracle waiting on the tail end of whatever the suffering is. There has to be a miracle. Has to be a miracle. Has to be a solution to it. And it places the design of the suffering not in the brilliance of God's creativity and not on the shoulders of God himself, but it places it on someone else like the devil. The devil's doing this, right? Which is a little bit of a cop-out. God allows this, but he doesn't prefer it. And I know what some of you are already thinking, well, then what about Job, Luke? The devil did that, did he not? That's true. The devil did do that. I would contend that the devil's on a tight leash in that story, if you read it. He's on a very tight leash. Permitting something in that story is the same thing as designing it. Permitting something in that story is the same thing as designing it because God himself knew that the enemy of our souls was going to even come through and make a submission to God on that day. It's not like God came and sat on his throne on that one day and thought, oh my gosh, the devil's here. How did that happen? Who do we have at the front door? I mean, so, I mean he, he's here? Golly. What, what, what can we do for you? I mean, you're not supposed to be here. I mean, why are you here? What, what do you need? Like, that really happened. That didn't happen. God knew that that day was coming. He had it designed. He had it designed. 
God still has a lot of power and a lot of heart in this view. This is why, this is why I think a lot of you are in it. God still has a lot of power, and he still has a lot of heart, but he's conflicted and confused. He might not design the, the affliction, but he'll go along with the flow, but he'll do it reluctantly. It allows us to kind of maintain and salvage a view of God so we don't feel so dirty worshiping a God like that, right? That's why I like in this, this situation, the blind guy being found by Jesus and his disciples, that's not a blind guy that was found by God in heaven. It wasn't. It's not like God in heaven is, is saying, Jesus, look, here's a guy. I didn't see him coming, but this is a perfect opportunity. Heal this guy. Do something crazy like spit on the ground or something. Get a lot of people's attention. But I'm telling you what, if this guy loses his blindness and he can start seeing, people are going to freak out. It's going to be awesome. You'll have all kinds of, listen, we're going to use this opportunity. It's an opportunity. Like God tripped on it. Is going to do the best he can with it. That didn't happen either. That didn't happen. God himself, with his powerful right hand, maneuvered, changed, altered the DNA and the biochemistry in that fetus to produce blindness. Not only is God weak in this view, he's confused and doing weak things. Things he doesn't want to do, but hey, he's got to keep up with the devil, right? It's tough. There is a third view. It's the one I think is biblical, and it's the one I think is bravely taught here as John writes about our hero, and that is that God purposefully, he purposefully designed it. He designed it. He drove it because he is in total control. He is in total control and not only allows or permits because those are, like I said, I feel like a cop-out words a little bit. He not only allows or permits, but he designs them before he threw the stars into the sky. The source of suffering is none other, the source of your suffering is none other than God's brilliant will, his brilliant plan for your good and for his glory. Now, do you hate that or what? Do you hate that? Is it hard for you? Is this a, is this a tough difficulty? It is for me. It's difficult for me. I've got some thorns right now. I've got some pervasive struggles and afflictions. It's hard for me to imagine traveling through this with God doing what Jesus says here, working out his power and his mighty works for all people, for my good and for his glory. It's hard for me. It's hard. But the Bible is soaked and saturated in not just suffering, but how God views it. I have a lot of evidence for what I'm saying. It helps me, even in my own struggles. I'll throw a couple up on the screen, but stay where you're at. 1 Peter 4.19. Let those who suffer according to God's will God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Exodus 4.11, right after Moses whines that he's not a good conference speaker, God speaks into his life and says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And then Psalm 139. The psalmist says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. <laughs> in your book were written every one of them, 
the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Listen, if you value the Bible as an authority at all, no way you're walking away from the Bible thinking that God has a small heart or a short arm. He's full of power and he is full of love. This is obvious. But then you have an obvious question, which is why does God initiate and purpose suffering in our lives? Is that not what the disciples are asking? It's a brilliant question. It's not a dumb question of theirs. This is Jesus' answer to display the works of God. That's his answer. To display the works of God, to reflect his glory, to platform the gospel, that's why it happens. Think about it just for a moment, to display the works of God. For who? For this guy? Well, yeah, for this guy and for you and me and for all of humanity. We have darkness being flooded with light. Now, that's a literal thing that happened then, but it's pictorial of what's about to come, of light coming in and expunging the darkness. Suffering stops here for this man, but it's pointing to a day where suffering will stop for his church, for you and for me forever. But let me just make a small caveat right here, and it's an important one. There does not need to be a miracle for God to be glorified and for God's works to be displayed in our suffering. What I'm saying is, is there might not be a storybook end And it's not necessary for God's glory to be reflected. God can be glorified well beyond a healing. I think it's easy for us to say this could only bring beauty to God and what he has done for mankind if there's a healing on the end of it, a stopping of this affliction, right? I think we just feel like we need that great storybook end to the cancer, to the marital problems, to the migraines, something. Without it, it seems that it'd be useless. It could not be used or utilized to glorify God in any way. But there is a reflection of God's glory that comes without miraculous healings. It's a special kind. Paul knew it well. He says this in 2 Corinthians. Stay where you're at. In chapter 12, there's a thorn. We don't know what the thorn is. If someone tells you that they know what it is, just blow them off. They don't know the passage very well. They don't tell us for a reason, right? But it's pretty big. And think about a thorn in your flesh. Have you ever had a thorn press in your flesh before? It's abrasive. And sometimes it's all you could think about is getting it out. Don't miss the picture of the language. He had a thorn. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, could you take this affliction away? God, could you remove this suffering? But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beautiful passage because we have God's work in Paul shown not through removing the thorn. We see God's works displayed in God leaving the thorn, leaving it, not ever bringing an end to it. I will tell you as a pastor to a beautiful church, there will be times where God will remove your thorn and God will be glorified. You will enjoy Jesus more. There will be times where God will not remove that thorn and you still have an opportunity to reflect God's glory and enjoy Jesus more. 
They're not mutually exclusive. God does not just permit thorns. He does not just allow thorns. He designs them to display his great and mighty works, his glory, his gospel, the truth that he is holy. We are not. We have a problem. He comes in with the resolution. He initiates. We enjoy for all of mankind to see. But does that seem fair? You know, I've got a good friend who, whose mom was possibly losing her spouse, a tenured marriage to cancer. And as he conveyed to me her struggles with God, there's a piece of my heart. I lost my dad to cancer, and so I watched him degenerate and then just to a shadow of who he really was. My heart agreed with her heart. My heart struggled. I understood what she was saying. She says, well, I don't know if I could worship a God. I don't know if I could worship a God who is so self-absorbed that he inflicts purposeful damage on innocent people. That sounds so noble, doesn't it? It sounds so noble that we wouldn't stoop to, to serving such a greedy God. It sounds so brilliant. It sounds so wise. It even puts our wisdom above God's I would say that there is a bigger story at work where there are no innocent people. And I think that is the key. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think that is the key to comprehending and seeing where God is active, active in our suffering. There is a greater story. God came to earth to end suffering by suffering. He understands. This narrative we're in, it's much larger than our individual afflictions, as bad as they may be, and they can be bad. All of the struggles that we have, they're not small ones. To a certain degree, I think the disciples were right here. Suffering did come by sin. That's what they're asking. I think they're right. It did come by sin. Had the original parents not sinned in the garden, there would be no blindness. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. It was his first parents' sin that produced a blindness like this. Had our original parents in the garden not rebelled against God, you wouldn't have back pain. Right? You would never taste poverty or lust or rejection. None of it. All suffering, all death we see springs from rebellion in the garden when the dragon came in and convinced Adam and Eve that God was oppressive. <laughs> you could do better off with, without him. In fact, he's holding you back. You could do a better job being God than he's allowing you to do. You should just throw off his oppressive control. And that's where it all started, way back in the grand narrative, and everything came from that. Your aunt's cancer, the tornadoes coming through, your constant pervasive infertility, because there's a struggle we don't ever talk about, right? All of that coming from a broken garden with jagged edges to it. And it is this broken creation that God comes to earth in the person of Jesus to reverse it, to take that darkness and make light. And how did he do this? He does this through suffering, through suffering. Hear me clearly if you hear nothing else today. No one hates suffering more than God. Your suffering, as bad as you hate it, your affliction, God hates it more. God hates your thorn more than you hate your thorn. Think about that. No one 
no one understands the price tag that comes through alleviating suffering quite like our, our Father in heaven does. He sowed his deepest treasure in his own son into our abusive hands, right? He gets it. The answer to cosmic suffering, bloody cross, empty tomb. It's the gospel. And just a little moment like this that permeates the whole story of Jesus on earth, just, just for a moment, shows what God is up to by flipping the switches on for this guy where he can see and his suffering stops. Now, whenever we as a church separate our suffering from the grand narrative and put it right here where it's all we can see, we are pulling it out of context, making it unfocused. And we just end up with a lot of question marks, right? We don't really know what to do with it. It's out of context. We ask questions like, what caused this? Why is this happening? What can stop it? We're basically flailing around theologically, trying to figure out what's going on. But if we remember the larger story and put our individual story back in it, then it starts to make sense, even if you still hurt. Even if there's still pain, at least you can process the pain. Your questions sound a little bit different, and they get answered. What caused this? Sin caused this. Why is this happening? The fall. What can stop it? Jesus. He already did. He already did. Now, if we were to zoom back into history, so I've been speaking big, right? If we were to zoom back into this passage, right, we see Jesus probably in one ear listening to them ask questions, and he just kind of maneuvers around the nerd fest, and what does he do? He gets down on his hands and knees, and he spits in mud. <laughs> he spits in the dirt and makes mud with his hands. Don't act like that's normal. Don't act like you see that often. No one's seen that before. I see a grittiness, just to use the obvious word, and a deep compassion and a close connection. He's, he's getting in it. He's up in it right now. Have you ever wondered why spit and earth and mud? Because we see him bringing light to the man's darkness, and we see great compassion here, but there are echoed elements of the first creation, of the first creation. Remember back to Genesis. This act that Jesus is doing right now, it announces that a new creation order is coming to look back on the first creation order. So dust was used to create man. Dust is now used to recreate and restore man. I believe that's what God is doing. I believe that he is undoing the effects of the fall and this miracle for you and me to see and know that a different time is coming. It's for you and me as well. There will be a day when brokenness is removed forever. I believe this miracle is one of those miracles that point to that day. I think this is also what Jesus is saying whenever he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. It sounds like a Jesusism, doesn't it? Like he's trailing off a little bit and then he comes back, right? <laughs> like he does that. This is what he's saying. He's saying, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right? He's not just being weird and, and metaphorical. He's saying that there is a day approaching when these individual moments of stopping suffering and taking affliction and flopping it, these individual moments of this village and that village and that person and this girl and that guy, those are about to come to an end, punctuated by a cross. It's stopping that. What he's doing now is day, that night is coming. Now, there will be a time in history, where the Holy Spirit comes afterward and still allows you and me to see miracles happen, to pray for things to happen, to see some beautiful things happen in affliction. But right now, Jesus is talking about that hard stop that is his night 
that is the cross. So we see some truths here. What we've talked about so far, before I get into application, the truths that we've seen, one, God's gospel and glory is displayed in our suffering, whether we are healed or not. Whether we are healed or not. Two, we see that God destroys suffering forever by suffering himself. These are true statements. Three, we see that God is both strong and loving, in control of our suffering, and he hates our suffering more than we do. These are true statements. But what do we do with them? How do you and I engage suffering? Walking out these doors with our problems and the problems of a broken city and a broken world. What do we do with suffering? I think there's three big applications before we finish this sermon. And one of them is to ask vertical questions. Ask vertical questions. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? Who's to blame? Ask, where is God in this situation? What is God up to? How may his glory ultimately shine through this affliction? Grace, grace by God leads us to do this. The Holy Spirit allows us to ask vertical questions, more of those fewer horizontal ones where we flail on each other. I think only, and I mean only, the eternal gospel beyond this world enables us to accept suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. A lot of churches and a lot of groups of believers will not accept suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. I think if you have a picture, a big picture of the grand narrative, you come to expect it. And here we have Paul saying in 2 Corinthians, stay where you're at. He says to the church, a struggling church with afflictions, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. That's the big picture. He's talking about taking our struggles and placing it back in the big scope. For the things that are, are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in other words, if you're suffering and you're stuck in your individual story and how sad it is, and you've got it so far in front of your eyes that you can't see the grand scope of what God is doing in mankind, you will never, ever, 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 ever be able to contend with that pain. You'll never know what to do with it. You'll be all thumbs with it, not even knowing how to pray, mad, looking for people that caused it, looking for quick ways for it to go away. That's what happens. However, if you keep your struggle in the correct context of the grand struggle, you ask vertical questions. Where can I be content like Paul is here? Where is the Holy Spirit working to display the works of God? Here's a question I have to ask myself. Where am I tempted to gain comfort right now in the struggle? That's a vertical question. Because when the affliction comes, we look for escape. Wherever your heart is looking for escape outside of God, right? That's a question that needs to be asked. How can my struggle lead me to enjoy Jesus more instead of away from enjoying Jesus more? You see, if God purposed the pain, friends, that means there's a purpose behind it. He's not just brutally just throwing it on people with no design or architecture to it. That's not what he's doing. But being vertical in our questions helps us bring it into context. You know, in June, me and my wife, we went to a pastor's retreat, the Acts 29 pastor's retreat. There's about 600 pastors there. And one of the keynote speakers, his name was Tabidi Annabawil. 
Um, he is a big figure in the Gospel Coalition, and I believe nine marks. But he came to speak to us about suffering as a pastor, which is a special kind of suffering. Right? Speaking to a room full of pastors, he said this quote that melted me. I'll never forget it. He says, the next time suffering comes into your room, pastor, say, welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. But this requires a vertical and big thinking, not a horizontal one. Also, if you struggle with that, keeping it in perspective, you will struggle with large chunks of the Bible. You'll never be able to understand what God is doing. Entire books. You'll never get beneath what Job is really communicating to us. As Matt Chandler once said, it's best to get a good theology of suffering and pain before it visits you. If you're not careful, you'll develop a sick theology of it and you don't know what to do whenever it visits you or the people around you. So vertical in our questions, vertical in our statements, horizontal in our proclamation. This is a little tougher, a little tougher, right? Allow that chapter of suffering in your life to display God to others around you. You see, the pool that the blind man went and washed his eyes in, it's called scent. It says it in the text. You don't even have to know like a lot of Greek or anything. It just says it's, it means scent. That's not accidental, right? You see, God was sent to us in such a way that he sends us out in a likewise manner. He is sent to us. He sends us out to the world. We see this in John 17. Jesus praying to his Father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, meaning you and us, you and me, sent them into the world. This means not wasting the purpose behind the suffering and not hiding it from others. Not hiding it from others. Did you notice he didn't do this in this passage? He was really quick to fess up. He's really quick to reveal what had been wrong and what is not wrong anymore. I mean, could you imagine? Just think about it. Think about this guy's life. It's pretty amazing. He wakes up the next day, and he sees red as a color for the first time. Probably just stares at it, whatever it is. He sees a bird for the first time. He sees things. It's, it's probably like God hit the reset button on his life. Doesn't have to beg anymore. He can get like a job job, right? This is this guy's new life. It's his new normal. And you know people wanted to talk to him. I would have. I would have wanted to hear about what God did and his struggle. I would have been like, hey, bro, seriously, do we look as crazy as you thought we would? <laughs> look at us. I don't think, and I don't catch from this passage that this guy would have said, what struggle? I didn't have a struggle. God is good. He was blind for a long time. Do you think that miracle took away all the pain from the blindness that he had for 20 plus years? No, no, no. Don't, don't think about that struggle. Not a struggle at all, really. I mean, once the miracle came, it made it all worth it. No, it didn't. 20 years he lost of sight. Is he excited? Yes, yes. But I get the feeling. I just get the feeling he didn't act like that was not painful. I think sometimes you and I, we, we will try to hide our pain and hide our afflictions and hide our sufferings from other people, I think partly because we don't want others to see how we medicate our pain. We don't want them to see the real us when we're hurting. And I think another side of us, we don't want people to think that God doesn't look good. We're trying to save his reputation and just allow others to see the good side of his profile. Friends, I think sometimes the most missional thing we can do is allow people to see our struggle in gospel comprehension in the middle of the struggle. I think that's got to be one of the most beautiful ways that we could show God 
the world doesn't know what to do. Affliction comes, suffering comes, the world crawls up in a fetal position, blaming everybody, trying, trying to build an identity out of it. I'm the victim, trying to rise above it. I'm above this suffering. It doesn't even know what to do with it. But as Christians, we land differently, even if it hurts and even if it takes a while. We land differently. You might have one good day and three bad days and another two good days and a bad day and six good days. That's just called growth, isn't it? Where we know how to handle suffering and then sometimes we just kind of struggle. Sometimes we struggle out loud. Nothing displays the work of God in our life quite, quite like how we handle suffering. Is that not the common thread that ties all of humanity together? Whether you're a Christian or not, no matter what country you live in, no matter how much money you make, is it not suffering that binds us all together and no one has an answer for it except Jesus here? You, you hold the answer for it. He's given it to you. It is to display the work of God for mankind in the picture of what Jesus has done for us. That's why. That's why. He was sent, and he sends us the same way. The third and my last point, basically, is that we are to get our hands dirty. This is a little less the suffering we deal with in our own life, but the suffering we see in the lives around us. This is more communal and missional in its application. Just getting our hands dirty. Being involved in the suffering of others. Jesus made a little bit of a mess here. Right? Mud. Notice in other places, he just snaps his finger, says a word, crazy things happen. Here he's getting a little bit dirty with his own hands. He didn't handle this guy from a distance. I think sometimes, for me, maybe you're like me, when it comes to getting myself involved in the suffering and the affliction of others, I'd much rather just write a check and stay distant. Not really getting my hands involved. I'll pray for you, you know? Ooh, gosh, ooh, I'll pray for you, man. But not to really get down and get hands on with something like this. This is something uncomfortable about it. Something uncomfortable and grinding about being in close proximity with those who are suffering because we feel like we need to say something to fix it. And if we can't fix it, it means that we're not a good uh, friend. We're not a good Christian. We feel kind of helpless, insignificant, failed. Jesus got close to this guy and the evidence is awkwardness. You know this was awkward. Could you imagine? If I were to spit on this stage right now, it'd gross half of you out. I mean, all the women would have something to say. Some of you guys would be like, bro, seriously, don't be spitting on a stage. You know, If I were to do that and then go and rub my hands in it, you'd be like, whoa, he needs a day off. This guy has totally gone the other way. This is awkward. But doesn't that just sum it up? Have you ever been in a hospital room? Bit awkward, isn't it? Should I talk? Should I pray? Should I pray out loud? Should I pray to myself? Should I say something? I feel like I have something really good to say to them that'll fix all of this. Should I say it? Should I keep it to myself? Should I stand over here? Should I stand close? Should I touch their hand? Should I not? Should I read the scripture out loud? Should I give them that encouragement? They're venting. They're saying some crazy things. Should I just agree? Should I rebuke them? Should I just listen? What do I do? Is it not awkward? Come on, you know it's awkward. Loving broken people in their suffering means awkwardness. It means not knowing exactly what to do. If you find yourself in a place like that and you feel ill-equipped, you're doing it right. You're in the right place. But as I tail this to a close, there are a couple hard applications, hard ones I think I could give you that might help a little bit. They're more observations as a pastor 
to you as you care for those who are suffering. There's a special kind of suffering when collisions just happen. Car accidents, sickness in the hospital, emergencies, right? And then there's a kind of suffering that just pervades. It just goes for years and years and years. Our role might look a little different in those situations. Instance, you're in a hospital room, there's a hard collision. I would say err on the side of being quiet but present. Err on the side of not being super vocal, right? No, you probably don't have the perfect thing to be said, and no, it probably won't fix all of their woes. Probably not the case. Maybe, but probably not. Another observation, when you walk into a place like a hospital room, maybe a day or two after something, don't ask people how they're feeling. When you ask someone how they're feeling, you're requiring them to process where they're at theologically on their sickness and to reproduce it to you very well. That's a heavy burden for them to carry. They're trying to figure that out. So be very careful with that. Being just present and letting people wrestle out loud, it does not make you a bad friend. Just process it with them. Let them vent, listen, cry, hold, get them meals, be tangible, be a supply line. Where can you ease their suffering? But sometimes the collision passes and it becomes more enduring. And that requires some leadership from us as the church, right? And I would say in that, focus on Jesus' defeat of suffering and the big picture. Take them back to the big scope that makes sense of what they're struggling with right there as much as possible. Help them without rebuking them. Don't get so nervous when they don't sound like John Piper whenever they're talking about it. You don't sound like him either. Just listen. When they love Jesus, this takes a while. It might take years for them to get there. They might not ever get there. That's when they love Jesus. When they don't love Jesus, you're going to need to be patient. You're going to need to be very clear. Get a good theology on suffering before it comes to you and those around you. Friends, listen, the hero of the story is the one reversing darkness. Sometimes he wipes away our tears here on earth, and then sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't, but make no mistake, there's a day coming when no more tears will fall, and suffering, gasping as it used to, will be set firmly in the grave. That day is coming. But I agree with Tabidi. The next time suffering comes into your room, Christian, Say, welcome my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. Stand with me. I want to read this passage over you and then we're done. Revelation 7. John wrote this as well, inspired by the Holy Spirit and brilliantly so. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, heavy affliction, heavy suffering. I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eye. Amen. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us. Even if it's hard for us to admit that we are super excited about being your children when we, when we can't make babies or when we can't get rid of back pain or when people are dying around us or we, we can't even make a living. Whenever there's affliction that's hard and heavy and things are cracking apart and it's difficult for us to cling to you and draw close to you, God, even at the basic level, we're thankful for what you've done for us on the cross. You have destroyed suffering. You have put an end to sin. You have brought new life to us, and there will be a day where all of this is consummated. And for that day, we look forward. And for this day, we trust you. Lord, I know that as I speak to a room this size, there still is hesitation. There still is a lot of crossed arms, and I don't believe it. There still is a hatred towards a teaching like this, and Father, I understand that. I have hated this teaching. I have hated this teaching. I have hated that you've brought affliction to me, but God, you have brought me to a place only by your Holy Spirit where I have loved you more with the thorns. With the thorns. And I'm content, as Paul is, but Lord, help me get there more. Father, this is impossible without your Holy Spirit. It's impossible for us to be vertical. It's impossible for us to be horizontal. It's impossible for us to get our hands dirty without your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us kindly as we take communion, that you would remind us of how suffering was totally ended for us. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name that we worship. Amen.